Welcome to 100 PM, the show where we interview 100 active product managers from startup to enterprise and everything in between, all from one great city every season. If you're joining us for the first time, be sure to visit our website, 100productmanagers.com. That's the number 100, productmanagers.com. It's the web's fastest growing resource for product management topics. We've got tons of great articles about business, technology, and design, fabulous contributors, and the official must-read, listen-to, follow list, as recommended by our incredible guests, week over week. It's season one. We're here in Los Angeles. I'm your host, Susanna Bate, resident instructor at General Assembly and founder of The Development Factory. Welcome. And thanks for listening. Today's guest is Jennifer Choi. Jen is the head of product development at McKinsey and Company. Now, for those of you who don't know, McKinsey and Company is a world-class management consulting firm. So you might be asking yourself, what the heck is a management consulting firm doing in product development? Well, that's what Jen is here to tell us all about, including her wild ride into the role. Let's get to it. start by telling our listeners who are you what's your role where do you work sure my name is Jen Choi I am head of product development at McKinsey and Company McKinsey you may know is a big management consulting firm um, really focusing on delivering strategic advice at the you know fortune 50 fortune 100 level McKinsey developed a almost internal startup group called new ventures and within new ventures um, there's a group called Solutions. So in a sense, it's a consulting light model that is more affordable, it's scalable and sustainable. And so I'm head of product development for one of them called OrgLab, which specifically helps organizations look at their business, um, the people, and decide if their organization structure is aligned with how they want to grow and how they want to drive towards their business objectives in a really increasingly complex world where there's lots of changes and macroeconomic shifts, Um, having the right people um, in the right roles has become more critical than ever. And OrgLab is helping leaders make those types of uh, strategic decisions. Is the idea that McKinsey is, through this kind of product group, productifying parts of its own service offering or frameworks, or you're specifically taking the consulting model and and pointing it at organizations that themselves want to develop products? It's the former. So not that we're cannibalizing on our own kind of bread and butter, which is management consulting, but I think if you look at the future, software will be a part of every consulting engagement. Management consultants today will almost have to transition to be product managers or what I call solution managers, where the product is not just the software application, but it's how do we talk to our clients? How do we guide them to make the right decisions? What's our go-to-market? How do we market this externally? So management consultants today will almost have to be product managers in the future because there's going to be a technology component to every type of strategic engagement that a consulting company does. And so McKinsey, we've developed some really awesome proprietary solutions, which eventually clients can use on their own. 
And so we do provide guidance on how to use it, how to deploy it, how to interpret the results. But, you know, largely the work that we do potentially could have been done by humans in a very manual way. But now we're putting them those solutions at their fingertips and saying, you have control of the software. Here's how to use it. Here's how to interpret it go forth and use it to help you make decisions. Well, it's, it's interesting because a lot of the time when we talk about product, we immediately in our minds default to B2C product. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's of course a lot of interesting B2B product as well, but in this context, they're similar insofar as they're these kind of end user applications and a lot of the time top line revenue drivers. And it sounds like in in some way what you're describing is the lesser talked about side of product, but but equally invaluable to organizations, which is creating tools that allow you to be more operationally efficient, Mm -hmm. that allow you to increase profitability from the bottom line. So not about necessarily replacing people, but allowing humans to focus on more interesting tasks and allowing automation to become just part of making the organization flow more smoothly. Absolutely, and that's a great point. So I think when people think about consulting, a lot of people think about cost cutting, right? How can I save money? Sure, there's always opportunities to cut costs, right? And you see that happen um, you know, with offshoring or divestments or, or things like that. But it's also about looking at the people that you have and really leveraging their strengths and understanding what are the critical roles, who are the key talent, and are we mapping those together appropriately, right? Oftentimes, we create big organizations, but we're not necessarily tapping into the real potential of the talent that we do have. And so part of the product really allows us to have that conversation with clients is, sure, there's a number that may look great and shiny and compelling, and perhaps you can capture some of it. But the real value is, look at the people you have, and you probably have some very talented people. Are those people being, are those skills being leveraged and optimized appropriately? Because those are the people that probably can make a huge impact. And you've already made the investment of bringing them on board, you know, hiring and training them. There's a lot that could happen if you put the right people in the right roles. So that's the better conversation that we want to have, and not just where can we eliminate roles, right? It's really creating what is the right organization. Right. One of the things that, that I tell students a lot, people who are coming to me looking to get into product management for the first time is, well, where are the opportunities, right? And the obvious opportunities are I've got an idea or for a product or, or a working prototype and I want to sort of bring it into market. But along these same lines, the lesser known opportunity to become a product manager right now is is there currently a process or workflow or tiny piece of technology that you have been managing perhaps without the title but all of this time you know you oversee a series of of steps inside of a manual workflow and and if that is your position you have an opportunity to bring sort of a product-centric point of view to that and say well let's treat this like a product let's treat this as its own thing and let's look at how we can make it more efficient and let's look at how we can acknowledge the users that are participating kind of in the sphere 
Absolutely. And it's really interesting working at a company like McKinsey where you have really brilliant, great, talented folks with really diverse backgrounds, but they're traditionally focused on the business problems. And I think product management, absolutely. You start at what is the problem we're solving for? You know, how do we deliver client good client impact? But I think the perspective that I bring is I'm an ex-consultant. Uh, I used to work in management consultant as well. And I made a pretty rapid and um, I would say sudden shift towards product management. And so the reason why my role is interesting is I understand where McKinsey comes from, but now I can look at it from a technology lens. So when we think about our product, which is a software product that our clients use, it's hard to, it, or I would say it's easy to get trapped in business, 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 and not think about technology, right? And how do we build this product right? And that's where I've kind of come in and really try to put some discipline and rigor around what does good product development and management look like? I don't think that you can take someone who is a genius rock star management consultant and then all of a sudden say, here, go run a software product, right? They're, they're different. There are transferable skills, but they're fundamentally different perspectives on how we look at what a good product is. And so I think the product manager's responsibility is to consider the business, right? What is the impact to um, clients and you know our users? But I think on the technology side, it's also how can we develop product in a sustainable and scalable way when everyone is knocking on my door saying, what's the roadmap look like? When is this feature going to be built? And understanding that things don't happen in product development overnight. Um, they don't. Uh, at least not in my world. Exactly, and and that's kind of the art of product management. Also, is baselining everyone to the same understanding that their development engineers are a limited resource, a very precious resource, and we can't just expect that things can be built and work perfectly if we're not putting the upfront investment and time into making sure that we define what that looks like. And so, business people tend to say, "I want this, make it happen," <laughs> and I say, "We can make it happen." But I need to sit down with you, understand the use cases, the problems we're solving for, what's the journey, how should it work, I want to bring in my product designer, what is the optimal flow, you know, just define everything, right? And I was like, then we can build you a good product that is reliable and functional that we can take to our esteemed clients without worries about bugs in production and things like that. So a lot of it is in introducing some discipline and just some knowledge around what is product management here at McKinsey? What should it look like? How do we adapt it for this very unique, what we call asset-based consulting, where we are still consultants, but now we're deploying an actual piece of software. Right. Um, you know, I always, again, tend to think of product as the app, right? The website, you know, the, the software. Here at McKinsey, it's far greater than that. It's the solution, it's the delivery of that product as well, in addition to, okay, how should this software work? Right, and what, what do we need to build in it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it sounds a little bit like service design thinking in, in that construct where we're not just talking about any one single asset, but kind of the, the whole of the solution. Though it's curious when you describe it that way of management kind of handing down the mandate and saying, build this, and not to suggest that that's what happens here. In fact, it sounds like it's the opposite, but it does, I think, shine a light on the challenge that the average organization faces when they themselves 
want to create product. You know, I have mm -hmm. personally consulted for organizations that birthed a product based on a whim, right? right? Or a good idea that a couple executives had. You know, there was some budget available. They put together a few scrappy resources to work on it part-time or whatever until it was finished. And then there's this sense of, well, now we have this thing. What are we supposed to do with it? Or, or having to correct the understanding that when you when you create a product you have a responsibility to nurture it to help it to evolve to continue to maintain it uh, otherwise you let it fester for two or three years and then you have to rebuild it again because the platform that you built it on or the the languages and frameworks you used are, are obsolete and sure. no one is connected to the roi in the first place yep so I, that's an interesting point. And I think, again, a lot of organizations who want to get into technology that aren't traditionally technology organizations kind of go through that uh, problem, right, or that kind of conundrum. I think there's two things. I think there is value in getting together with folks and doing a rapid prototype and coming up with an idea, right, that's rough, that, you know, doesn't have the elegant back-end code, um, that really is just an idea that some people hack together. I think there's tremendous value in doing that. I think what happens next is there has to be a pause, right? And then there has to be a business case that's developed around, do we need to really invest, do we want to invest time and resources against this because we think we have a really compelling idea that can then transform into something that's a growth driver for the company? Right. And depending on you know the size of the company, maybe yes, maybe no. But if it were me, I want to see a really good business case for that. I want to see the rationale behind it. I want to see scenarios. I want, you know, the financial models behind it. You know, I just want something that will prove to me that, yes, I can and I'm willing to take X amount of money and X amount of resources because I think this idea has a chance. The problem is, is when you start building on top of that, it's just, you're essentially creating a Jenga model, right? And that could topple any time if you don't stop. And if it means refactoring, refactor. I'm a big believer in do things right. The rough prototype can be a mess, right? Just t take it and test it. Do mm -hmm. people like it? But then there has to be some discipline around building good product. And especially in enterprise, you have to optimize for reliability. You don't want to keep building on top of something that isn't solid because, again, that Jenga piece will eventually fall down. Here at McKinsey, and I think generally my product management ethos is, I'm not feature driven. If you come to me and say, I want this feature, I don't really want to know about that feature, but what I want to know is, what experience does that fall in, right? We have a product that people interact with, different folks interact with. There's a set of experiences that folks go through, right? There's a journey. Um, sometimes it's sequential, sometimes it isn't. But I'm not looking at things at a feature level. I'm looking at what experience are we trying to solve for. We know our clients are doing this. We know our consultants are doing this. We also know the context in which they may be doing it. Mergers, divestments, outsourcing, automation, right? Within that experience, we build features. So I want folks to shift towards that mindset of you can build a feature in isolation, but if it doesn't fall nicely within the experience of what someone actually does today, they won't know how to use it. Um, and so part of my role is really getting folks to transition into that thinking of being, today we're feature driven, 
tomorrow we need to be experience driven. Right. Or an, another way to, I think, frame what you're talking about is what's the why behind any of these decisions that we're making? And sometimes when it comes to features, we gravitate there because it looks cool or it's a way to leave a mark or we just tend to err on the side of tactical. And, and I think you're speaking to that discipline as a product manager to say, well, hold on, let's just not put features there because we can. Exactly. I'm curious, you brought up MVP and this idea of a scrappy prototype. And it's interesting, this concept has been around now for some time. A lot of people know the term. They don't always know what it means, but they use the term. And I even struggle with clients who come, they've got an idea that's here. Mm -hmm. I push them to bring that idea down six notches. You know, yep. let's, let's build this landing page and mm -hmm. drive some traffic. Let's see what happens Absolutely. there. And the resistance that I see a lot of the time is that fear of imperfection. And we're talking about at the startup level even. I'm curious how that fear of imperfection manifests when you're in an enterprise environment. I mean, aren't there stakeholders who feel terrified to put something scrappy in front of a client, in front of colleagues? Yes, and, and <laughs> sometimes I am the terrified one. Okay. Um, but I think, and I've, I've joined McKinsey not too long ago, so I've come into a product that has been developed and is out in the market today. But, you know, obviously we're always looking to improve and enhance. I think there's a distinction between putting together a prototype that is so pie, blue sky, right? And putting that into market can be very scary because that becomes an expectation, right? That it's going to be this cool new thing, um, whether it's a redesign or it's a new feature. When I mean prototype, especially in my context, we're looking at a small piece of functionality and I'm saying, let's just test to see if it works, right? So a prototype for me is let's pilot it first and get the right feedback before we bring, kind of broaden it out to you know, all our clients or all of our users. But I think it's one, one thing is making sure that the folks who are deploying it and giving it to clients know its known limitations and know how to use it inside and out so there's no surprises. Two, I think, it's around the conversations you have with a client around, we have this new feature, right? We know that it's been asked for, people want it. We have it here, it's not perfect, right? But we're listening to you, we've heard your feedback. Here's how this feature can help you in your unique experience. You know, at a startup level, and I've worked at smaller startups where we had more flexibility, I think, to go ahead with something that wasn't quite perfect, right? And we could always revert back. But I think the prototype is really for testing. And so you should have that mindset that the prototype or um, the pilot is really a feedback mechanism, but you have to be iterative. And I think once you go into that mindset it's and you position it right, especially to your clients or to your users, suddenly it becomes a little bit more understood and there's a little bit more breathing room. Well, there is a freedom in embracing imperfection. I mean, mm -hmm. candidly, I've been embracing imperfection almost my entire life, but I recognize it's not everyone's experience, but there's something to say for like, just don't worry so much about it. Mm -hmm. Let it be a little rough and we'll make it better for Work the right reasons. Totally. And working in software, for me, what's important is if it's a front end thing, right? If it's something a user sees, we can change that. 
But I am concerned about making sure our platform, our infrastructure, is stable and extensible and configurable so that we can add new features. Let's get that in tip-top shape. We can change how it looks. We can change the flow. I, I'm all about, let's be okay with things not looking perfect, right? Sure, that color is off or that palette is weird or you're missing a button. Those things to me are cosmetic. But if you have a good foundation, those things can be remedied pretty easily. Now, when I worked in web and mobile, those user things are really important, right? There's a lot around perception. And, um, you know, it's just a very different kind of ballpark when you talk about enterprise software and you talk about something that's purely B2C, um, content-driven, and things like that. So, um, you know, part of being a product manager, I think, is to be well-rounded. So I personally loved working in a B2C area. Um, I liked working at a bank, American Express, doing product. And then, you know, here I am at McKinsey, which is fundamentally a consulting organization where our clients are, you know, businesses um, and not necessarily users. At the granular level, a user, a human is using it, but we serve clients. And so um, having a range of experiences, I think, helps you understand at what point you should be developing what, the difference between an MVP on web versus an MVP in, in software testing. So there's just so many components that are a little bit different kind of in each environment. And I feel fortunate that I've had the chance to experience that in, in different organizations. Well, you actually touched upon, I think, two really important themes, one of which is, is a common one we talk about on this show. F- frankly, it's one of the reasons the show exists, which is to say that being a product manager changes drastically from different roles. And hearing you frame it up that way, I think, is beneficial because it's not just about culture, which is another thing, and maybe we can talk about that a little later, but actually just the concerns are different. Mm-hmm. And you know, the concerns about a B2C product and, and getting the right things right and the things that can be switched, as you, as you rightly point out, are fundamentally different than those which can't be wrong when you're playing in an enterprise space. The other thing is, I think, an important concept, especially for product managers who aren't inherently technical, and that's understanding the impact or the cost of change, right? So there's always a cost to change, as we know, and in software, that cost of change gets more expensive the deeper down into the foundation you go. So when you describe scalable infrastructure as an example, that is an important part of it because if you need to be able to have burstability to 20,000 users or 2 million users, Mm -hmm. and you know to some extent in a validated way that that's where this has to go, you have to invest very differently in um, web server configuration, very differently in database architecture than you do if you're building like a SaaS product in PHP and it's just like, I'll get you know my favorite misnomer of, of the landscape, a full stack developer. I mean, you might find a great developer or two who know a little bit about each layer in the stack, sure. but there's one thing to hack together a simple MySQL database for a basic app. It's another thing to build you know, encryption systems that hold deep financial information sure. and how that's gonna be leveraged. Right, and so, in my role, I really protect my development team's time. 
They're a valuable resource that are working on incredibly important things. And for me as a product manager, one of my big goals always is let the developers work, right? <laughs> Minimize the disruption. If you know anything about developers, oftentimes they get in a zone, right? And they just want to code and engineer. And I don't want to disrupt that flow. That flow is extremely productive and it makes us move faster. For me, I do not want to put anything in front of my developers to actually engineer unless it is thought through, it's flushed out, it's specced out, they have the assets that they need to really move forward. When I worked at you know, Hello Giggles, we had two engineers, two, and then we went to one engineer, fabulously talented engineer. We could be a bit more scrappy. We could involve her in more of the conversations up front. It was a her? It was a her, and she's probably, Sandra, if you listen to this, you're a rock star engineer, probably one of the best engineers I've worked with, not just from a technical standpoint, but kind of a thought leadership and bringing a perspective, right? Um, Love that. Yeah, she's fantastic. And so when we were in Hell Giggles, we had more room to experiment. And again, being a B2C product, our concerns are going to be different, right? For us, it's all about, are we being authentic? Are we showcasing the brand? Are we um, really bringing forth who we are and being true to our, our, our name and our ethos? That was a big driver. Like That was our mission statement. And for me, making sure that that was reflected across not just our website, but also in our ad products was really important. Versus if I look at Org Lab, very different concern. We do, of course, care about the McKinsey brand and the name and um, new ventures and solutions, but we're also solving for specific client problems. If you're in a scrappy five-person startup, you're probably not just the PM, you're the PM, you're the ops person, you're the marketing <laughs> person, right? Um, at Hello Giggles, I, I can kind of had some of that, right? Where it's not just I'm focused on the experience on mobile, right? I'm also thinking, you know, what if we A-B test this ad over this ad, right? What makes more money? Um, you know, there's, there's other things you have to consider. And so for Hello Giggles, absolutely our mission was let's be true to our brand. Let's make sure that we're promising and delivering on the name of creating a safe and empowering place for young women. Every company has its different ethos and focus and mission. And as a product manager, I think you have to find the right balance of making sure that, that you're still being true to that in every decision you make. Yeah, I think that's it is a really diverse range of experience that you bring to this role. And I'm glad that you brought up Hello Giggles because it, it reminds me that you recently gave a talk at Facebook mm -hmm. and you were talking kind of specifically of the rise of native advertising. And we can, you know, for our listeners, uh, we can get the resource out. So if you're interested in that talk, you can look into it more deeply. But specifically, it was rooted in kind of understanding your users and, and understanding their habits, which is, of course, as we know, such a critical part. It's a critical part of the marketer's role, but that's always been understood, but it's such a critical part of the product manager's role. Can you speak a little bit about kind of your philosophy on that as it relates to sort of advertising and the importance of knowing the user groups and the user habits? And Sure. Well, I think we all know we live in an interesting world of a lot of clickbait and catchy headlines. Fake news, you know, has become the centerfold of a lot of debates that we're having today. And so we want to be a place that we need to weed out that kind of content, right? We're not looking for the, 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 
eye-catching headline. We have a market. We have a, a, a niche group of users that love our content, that trust our content. And I think if we want to continue to grow and develop that audience, we need to think about who they are, what they like, what they don't like, what is intrusive and what is not intrusive. And so when you think about sites you may go to that you open it and there's like five pop-ups and all kinds of things going on and you have to page through, you know, 10 pages. I mean, that's all because they want views, right? What Hello Giggles does, and I think, you know, personally, I am very hyper aware of sites that do this well, is around native. If you understand your user, you can start creating compelling advertising that speaks to their user. So, you know, whether it's sponsored content that is still in the tone and voice of the site, whether you're creating video series that are humorous, um, that again are you know, in line with the voice of, of the brand or the company, you know, those are the ones that make the most impact, not just from a monetary perspective, but in a engagement perspective, right? If you're a user, if I'm a user on um, you know, a site that's related to sports, I don't wanna be served a ad that is catering towards insurance or, or something that does not pertain to me. But if they showed me, you know, a highly curated, cool video series, I love to ski, on skiing and, you know, there was a, a product that, you know, like a GoPro or something like that, that to me is a much more effective use of my time spent on that site. And it'll probably keep me on the site, right? I'm not leaving. I'm not having that high bounce rate because I'm like, oh, man, just like another ad that I don't care about. So, you know, oftentimes groups can be at odds. Right, sales sometimes wants to run something because to hit a mark and you know product or editorial. And they say I don't want to do that, and sometimes product manager is the arbiter. Right, they're the person that says comes up with the solution that can maybe you know fit both. You know, product can kind of step in and say, how about these alternative suggestions? So, I really do think product managers are at the center of it all. In every single role I've been in, I've touched every single other stakeholder group in the organization. Right. In some way or the other. Well, I want to stay on this topic for a minute because it's one that gets me all hot and bothered on my own time. And and, I, and you've brought up a couple things that I think are important, right? First of all, I think about sites like Mashable, which to me is like the number one offender of this. They have been increasingly modifying their user interface and experience to essentially trigger false clicks, right? So, you know, the, the see more button, which is weirdly placed right above the browser Chrome so that, you know, even with small hands like mine, I'm constantly hitting the ad. And there's a few things that are happening for me as a user. Number one, I'm getting pissed off, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not enjoying my experience of being on the Mashable content platform, right? I'm not enjoying my product experience there. I'm certainly not retaining the information of the brand whose ad I've been forced to inadvertently click, but if I am so lucky as to see it, I'm definitely sweeping that brand into the doghouse with all of the other offenders who have sort of forced me into this position. And I think to myself, why are people participating in this? I mean, I understand for, for certain content platforms, there is that pressure of which way are we going to go? Are we going to swing toward fiercely protecting journalistic integrity? Or are we going to swing toward click-through rates and, and revenue dollars? 
but then the advertisers themselves aren't they wanting to make sure that the users who are seeing those ads are seeing them in a positive light seems like no that's part of it it's a really fine balance between creating good user experiences and monetizing and there's no secret formula as to what will yield the best user experience and also yield the most money. I think a lot of what I've done is test, right? Let's run something for a week and see where we see drop off or uptick in metrics. Um, and that's where testing becomes really important, right? Because the placement of something can dramatically change conversion rates or whatnot. And you see this a lot in e-commerce. I totally agree with you that there are ad units that are prevalent on a lot of sites that are really unideal, right? They're at a place where you'll ever be click it because just the nature of how we swipe and how we gesture and interact with our phones. I think there's kind of learning on everyone's part, right? As a publisher, it's important that you respect your users and understand that you do have to protect and have a, a role in protecting the journalistic integrity and making sure that your content doesn't just become a farm mill of clickbait. And I think Hello Giggles has done a great job of that because we do have a very dedicated, loyal group of people. I like that you still refer to it as we, even though you're no longer with the, you have to let it go, Jen. I, I do, but I'm, I'm still, I still consider myself part of the family, <laughs> um, and I always will. And they're just such a great group of folks to work with who truly do care about our users. And then there's the advertisers. And I think advertisers need to understand that we're not, we should not be living in the age of the banner anymore. We gotta go beyond the banner. And again, that's where native really comes into play is let's create a story, right? And there's so many other ways you can advertise that is not a banner. Influencer networks on Instagram, um, on Twitter, you know, that's very compelling these days, right? Find the right people to be ambassadors of your brand. That's not intrusive, right? Mm -hmm. You're, if you have followers, they're gonna be looking at your Instagram feed. I think that's part of the you know, advertisers to say, what new ways can we actually create stickiness with the people that are viewing our ads? You know, and it's not the banner anymore. In fact, it's probably detracting people from coming to your brand. Right, right. Um, and, I, and I really believe that. And it, you know, it's, it's, it's just tough to find the balance. You just have to keep testing what works and what doesn't and find the optimal mix of where are we making money and where are we not compromising on our, our on our user experience? Right. Yeah. I mean, the other the other side of that sort of same argument and that balance is if you look at products like DoubleClick, right, mm -hmm. or you know Facebook Pixel. So you know these products have been tremendously helpful for creating ever-present ads. You put a pixel in. If somebody comes, you can stay with them forever. But what I think people are starting to connect with is it creates a stark contrast in certain experiences like you know you talked about wanting to yeah I want to see a ski ad when I'm on a sports site because those two things relate in my mind and if you know one day I happen to be over here at the Thinks website because I love Thinks by the way they're one of my favorite brands but then I'm somewhere over here on uh, you know a product management blog I don't want to see those things ads, you know. I don't want to be reminded of that brand in this moment. In fact, I would you would have a much higher conversion rate serving me up an ad that feels like an extension of the content that I'm there to see and feel. So, I think there's a really interesting phenomenon now where 
back in the day, we wanted to see custom pages that were designed for us, right? It, it just makes it feel more personal. And I think that's still right. But now we're getting into a place of intrusiveness, right? Where you can be, sometimes I get creeped out where I may be talking about a brand and then I'll see it, right, in my Instagram feed, in my Facebook feed, and it's just weird. It's like a big brother phenomenon. And I'm seeing folks starting to get apprehensive about that, right, where the brand is following them on every single medium that they are because we have so much data on what they visited, their shopping carts, and things like that. It's, it's interesting to see how we wanted something curated for us, but not too much. Right. And I think it, 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 it'll be, there'll be a push and pull. There was a great talk I listened to by the, I think the CEO of Upworthy, and he was talking about how in the future, everything will be curated for you. And he said, so you'll be seeing things that you, they think you want to see, but not necessarily what you should be seeing. And it goes back into, you know, if you are a hardcore like liberal, right, and you're seeing all these liberal things, is that helpful, right, to society? You should probably want to see the, the other perspective. Right. And so I think there's almost a push towards reverting back to maybe not being hyper-curated. I think the idea of following you everywhere is not going to work. I think it's... Because we call that stalking in the real right. world. Right. And no one wants a stalker. Right. Um, there's laws against that. What I hope to see is it doesn't follow you everywhere, but it may suggest other things similar to that product in the format, again, of the page you're on now. Right. Let's talk a bit about, you know, we have been talking about the differences between enterprise and startup, and, and I think you're rare insofar as you've lived and played in both of those spaces very equally, mm -hmm. and that's not common. We sort of tend to, sometimes people will go to an enterprise organization, quickly realize that's not for me, and then never return, and sometimes it's the opposite. You've sort of you were enterprise, you went to startup, you came back to enterprise. What is your sweet spot? Yeah, that's a great question. So I was a management consultant for about four years. And when I was consulting with executives, there was such a big focus on technology, right? What should we be doing in the digital age? You know, all these kind of buzzwords. And I thought, man, that sounds cool. I'm kind of young-ish. I want <laughs> I want to get into that. And so... I thought, what role would be good for me? Because I have a business background. And I thought, as I read through the internet and just kind of thought about what are the roles that are in technology today, I thought product could be a good fit for me. A couple reasons. One, stakeholder management or working with tons of teams and people is really important. Okay, I did that in consulting, right? Being able to be articulate and clear in your communication, well, I had to learn that in consulting. Being able to manage teams, okay, I had to do that in consulting. So I think the key for me was, and for anyone who's looking to get into product management, if you're in a marketing, sales, whatever role um, that's non-technical, I think the key is to find the right transferable skills, being articulate, being clear in communication, working well with teams, being an analytic thinker, being able to just roll your hands up and get dirty, taking a back seat when you have to, right? You know, when something launches, I'm always like, Thanking my, making sure my development team is at the first and foremost. Like, you've got to be the unsung hero. You know, I think if you want to be a product manager and you want to get into it, it's just demonstrating those skills. And then for me, the reason why I kind of went all over the place is I wanted to get a really well-rounded experience. So Amex was my first product role because they took a gamble on me. 
I try to show them I have these transferable skills. I really am passionate and want to do this. Give me a chance. So wait, you were, when you applied to be to join American Express, you were that quintessential, I don't have any product management experience, please hire me as a product manager yes. person. Okay, this is good, because there are a lot of our listeners that are precisely in that role. So tell us how you succeeded in convincing them. So it's an interesting story. I joined Amex in September um, in an internal consulting group. Six months later, I'm told we're reorging. My job no longer exists. Okay. So they were great. They gave me a lot of time to find a new position within the company. And one of the great things about Amex is they really encourage people to try new roles. And so I found one role, and it was a senior product manager. <laughs> so it's not even just like a product analyst, or it's a senior product manager role <laughs> in a business unit I never worked in with people I do not know in the company. And I met with them and I said, listen, I have zero product experience, but I read about product. I'm in the know about it. I'm really eager to learn about it. Here are the things I've done in my past that I think translate nicely into product. I'm willing to come in and work hard to compensate for my lack of experience in this senior product role. Will you give me a shot? And so they came, they went away for a while. And then, you know, I think they liked the fact that I was really going to be scrappy and kind of get my hands dirty. The other thing I liked is I think they liked, I think companies sometimes like people without product experience. Interesting. Because you have a fresh perspective, right? You don't come in so rigid and defined and we got to run agile and scrum this way, right? We, our retrospectives have to use this template. You know, you come in with, I don't know that much. I can pick it up and then I can adapt it to your organization or this team. And I think I've heard this a lot from product leaders that sometimes they really prefer that. You can hire a rock star guy from Google or Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, but they may not be the right fit for a six-person startup, but they'll come in with all these ideas about how it should be done. And so that was one of the other things I said is I will bring a fresh perspective and adapt it to this team that is slowly adapting Agile. I was confident about the role, and then they told me, actually, this role has been frozen, so we're not really sure if this is going to open up or not. Now, I had about four weeks until I had to just leave, right? I got from my notice from my that job that at Amex that I got laid off from. And so I was like, man, I don't think this is going to work out. So I'm going to take buy one of those round-the-world plane tri uh, tickets and just travel, right, <laughs> for like three months. So I was like planning my itinerary. And three days before the date where I was supposed to leave American Express, they called me and said, it's reopened. We'd love to give you the position. So... All the stars had to align for me, and I almost never got into product. I don't know how I would have gotten into product if this didn't happen. I mean, I could. I'm knowing me, I probably would have done some finagled something <laughs> scrappy and got my way somehow. But that was really the door opener. And I think those things about transferable skills, the determination, and bringing fresh perspective are all really good selling points. If you don't have any product experience, Great. I had no digital experience really. I mean, I was a straight business consult management consultant. I, I love these stories. We've had a few guests on the show share similar experiences, and, and I think tenacity is the takeaway. It's, you know, I had a, a colleague of mine used to say, you know, if not in through the door, then in through the window. If not in through the window, then in through the ceiling. And 
you do have to fight for it if you want it sometimes. I mean, sometimes the stars can align and, and things can happen or there's a lot of people who get promoted to the product manager role. They didn't necessarily ask for it and, and they're in the position of, of listening in and going, yeah, that's my, my thing. How do I do this job? What is this job? But right. tenacity counts. And it's not just getting the job. It's once you get it, you have to prove yourself extra. I started going deep into the technical architecture and diagramming it on my own, right? Which is, we have someone kind of in charge of that. <laughs> but I was like, I want to be so involved in every part of the product. I want to understand the database. I want to understand how data flows, the calls, APIs. Like, I want to show them that I care not just about the product from a user perspective and being the advocate for the user. I want to go deep in the technical stuff. I started kind of teaching myself some basic code. Um, I started blogging about it. I was like, I want to prove to you that I not just want this job, I want this as my career, right? And I'm willing to make the investments in myself developmentally to prove to you that I care about this. I care about the product. I care about the product as a discipline. And I'm willing to go and do what I need. And that's kind of to your earlier question why I've kind of hopped around is I want to get the varied experiences. You know, then I went to a more technical API product role. All of a sudden, I'm reading and writing JSON. Um, <laughs> do I know anything about it? Not really, but you know, I understand how APIs work, how authentication, webhooks. For me, I think if you wanna be a good product manager and you care truly about it as a career, you should, I encourage you to get varied experiences on both technical and non-technical, enterprise and non-enterprise. I think you'll learn so much about how to handle these kind of different unique situations. But, you know, for me, I was like, I'm just going to go f into it. Like, if I'm in it, I'm going to go full throttle. I blog about it. I read about it. I try to attend conferences when I can. Um, and that's just a commitment to, I want, this is my, I, this is my career. I found what I want to do for the rest of my life. You know, how do I hone it? How do I refine it? How do I get the experiences I need to get to where I want? Yeah. Jen does blog a lot. And in fact, we've got a bunch of content that you've written that we're going to be putting up on the site as well. So you're going to have an opportunity to hear all kinds of insights beyond just this awesome conversation we're having. That's at least the second time in this interview that you've organically led me to where I wanted to go next. Sorry, um, I probably took you on a crazy trip, so I apologize. No, no. So we like to, to wrap up by doing a segment called Get the Job, Learn the Job, Love the Job. And mm -hmm. you just organically, I think, spoke to get the job, right? Which mm -hmm. is advice for how to get in, especially sure. without experience. Talk to us about the hard lessons. H have you either yourself or seen in, in other collaborators people fall down in, in the PM role because there are certain aspects of it that can be more challenging in practice than in concept? Absolutely. So I think with product, it's part art, part science. I think most people can reasonably run an agile or product development process, right? There are things that we know we need to do. I think it's the conversations that can be difficult. So that's the art part. A lot of product managers have to really balance between all these requests coming in from the different groups saying, I want this, I want that, where's the roadmap? How do you prioritize? And it's being able to talk to those people and understand when you need to push back, how you need to communicate to those people. That to me really distinguishes a good product manager who can check off the boxes and get a feature out the door. 
to an awesome product manager who can really be the person that others view as you know the GM of the product that can have the hard conversations that know when to push back who understand the business the macroeconomic climate how to prioritize it's a continual balance I think the, the product manager role is like you're always walking the fine line of what do I build how do I communicate how do I make this product awesome and balance all the feedback I'm getting at the same time and make sure people are happy not just your users but everyone else in the business that's I think that the hard part of product management is is finding the right way to do that um, especially it can be difficult when you're in a big company right and you have a lot of people asking you where's this where's that and putting your foot down um, when you need to right so if that's the hard part what's the fun part why do you love product so much for me it's being able to, whether it's B2C or B2B, seeing people use something that you've built, that you've, you know, specked out, that you've thought about for, you know, months or weeks, and then seeing a result come out of that. You know, at McKinsey, it's, you know, we have specific outputs that can really help influence, you know, a C-suite level executive to make a decision. You know, for our users, it's so gratifying when they tell me, you know, I love, I love the site. You know, I feel safe here. It's my home, right? I'm part of this community, whether it's for, you know, an API product manager opening up your platform for other developers to come in and plug in and create new products on top of yours. I think that's the best part is you see real impact um, that's tangible and you, you know, you're creating something that's value add. A lot of times it's hard to see that in your job. You know, you think you're doing it, but in product you can. And also just the creativity, especially at McKinsey, we, there's an, uh, a real environment of I can just speak up, right? If I want something, I'm like, what about this, right? Let me just go work with one person and, and hack it together. It's an idea. And I think that's a great perk of being in product is you can just test ideas. Um, or you can, and hopefully, you know, where you work has the flexibility to allow you to explore that. But you could create brand new stuff, stuff that doesn't exist today. And that's really cool, right? You're not, you can explore something that you had in your head since you know a year ago and like sketch it out on paper and maybe put together something really rough and then ask some friends to use it right and I think having that creativity and that creative license to be able to take ideas and actually see them in application is one of the most rewarding parts of being in this job Um, yeah well put and I couldn't agree more Talk to us about resources. Are there any books, blogs, podcasts that you listen to or love that you think are just like gold, just hidden gold waiting to be mined? Yeah, so um, I'm a huge podcast junkie, which is one of the reasons I'm super excited to do this. (laughs) Um, And I'm also an avid reader um, of technology and non-technology books. Obviously, Ken Norton, he's kind of the godfather of product. I love what he says about Um, product management and finding the right people. I love First Round Capital. I think their blog produces a lot of really interesting content, not just on product in general, but some provocative ideas around product. You know, you talk about Airbnb and how they have these really cool elastic teams. Um, The three types of product managers you want in your organization, depending on what stage you're in. Um, That's a great one. Podcast-wise, I love The Moth, which I know is not technology-focused. But I think there's something to be said about storytelling that's important. And a part of a product manager's job is you have to tell the story, right? You have to know 
why this product matters, why this feature matters, uh, why it's valuable. And I think there's something to be said about telling the right story. So I love The Moth to help me um, look at great storytellers and what makes a story really good. And I think Malcolm Gladwell in Revisionist History does an impeccable job of telling a story centered around an idea and a theme. Um, TED Radio Hour does that really well as well. And then um, I love this podcast that's fairly new called How I Built This by NPR. Okay. So they interview founders of companies um, and how they've kind of come to where they are, basically how I built this. And there's one I would really encourage, I think, folks who don't come from business or product backgrounds to listen to, and it's the Airbnb episode around the founders who are these art students from RISD, right, who don't have any business background, right? They're not indoctrinated by you know, e Econ 101, right, or, you know, Poli-Sci 101. They're designers. They're art students. And if you see, like, their journey and how they've pivoted um, drastically sometimes, right, you know, if, one, you want to start your own business, or two, you just want to know kind of the genesis behind some of the most powerful brands and companies today. Love that. I mean, I always equally love and feel equally terrified in this moment when I ask guests about this because if a long list like that one comes up and there's a bunch of stuff that's new now I know that I've got a whole bunch of reading and listening ahead yep. of me which is exciting and also there's so many resources that it's like sometimes you just want can I just take a six-month time out Absolutely. consume it all catch up and then keep going and of course we can't so on the books front um, sprint is a great book how yeah. to test ideas in five days Building Products That Inspire, I think, by Marty Kagan is like a good one. Um, and then I like the one, I think it's called Think Think Fast and Slow. Yes, yes, That's yeah. a great one as well. Um, so I think, you know, it doesn't have to be a product-related book, but I think there are a lot of good books. Like I love um, Tiny Beautiful Things, which is a book around kind of struggle and perseverance and, you know, around life in general. But I think, I personally think a good mix of, Fiction and nonfiction, technical, non-technical, can always help you, right? I don't purely just read product blogs and things like that. Hence, like, The Moth, to me, is a great one, I think, that product managers will probably overlook, but give it a whirl, you know? <laughs> uh, okay, last question for you, Jen. Do you have a personal or professional mantra or sound fight, some philosophy that you use to govern yourself in life, in business, or in both that you want to leave behind for us and our listeners? Yeah, so I'm not sure if this is a, a great soundbite in terms of being a, a pithy one-liner, but I'm a really big believer in fail fast. So for me, I'm kind of rogue in a sense where I will do something pretty much until someone tells me not to, right? And when I have been told not to, you know, it can be considered a failure but I feel fast. I get up and I literally look back at what I've done, extract the learnings, like I write them down and like on post-its <laughs> and then I start, I shift. Like for me, when I fail, I fail, right? That's it. But the next day, I'm onto something else, a new idea, a new concept, a, fo a complete pivot. That to me is, is really important as a product manager is to, you gotta be quick, right? And you have to be quicker than ever. Um, if I look at where the industry is going, there's all kinds of product roles, and you just have to be able to get up and go. Love it. Hey, listeners, are you fans of the 100 p.m. podcast? 
If you are, we'd be so grateful if you could head on over to iTunes, click subscribe, and give us a five-star rating. Maybe even take a minute to give a review. Tell other listeners what it is that you think is great about the show. The more great reviews we get from listeners like you, the more opportunity we're going to have to get exposed to more and more listeners all across this great country. So please head on over to iTunes, rate 100 p.m. We're so grateful. We'll see you next week.